Welcome to Iconography, a podcast about the geography of icons, real and imagined. Since I am a very freshly minted newlywed, I haven't quite had all the time I'd wanted to craft the new episode on Piccadilly Circus, so instead, I thought I'd give you a chance this week to hear where it is that iconography sort of came from. Back in 2015, I dedicated the Halloween episode of my previous podcast, Context Sensitive, to Guillermo del Toro's misunderstood Crimson Peak. Now, as you'll hear, the context explored, it actually has a lot of similarities to what I'm doing today on iconography. I looked at what distinguishes British ghost stories from American ones, and also at how del Toro turned the subtext of gothic romance, a la Jane Eyre, into text by making the ghosts of the past into very strikingly real ghosts. There are definitely spoilers ahead, so if you haven't seen Crimson Peak before, it's actually debuting on HBO this month. See? I keep things timely. (laughs) I hope you enjoy the iTunes debut of Phantasma Gorier. And the sheriff has shown up many times, and the last time they were about to shoot the door open because through the glass they could see a dead woman. <laughs> and, and, and I, it's Linda Blair from The Exorcist. I watch TV with her. She, I have her life-size in the sofa watching the TV. And they said, the lady is not reacting. I said, she's not reacting because she's made of silicone. <laughs> that Lewis accent belongs to director Guillermo del Toro. He's on Kimmel promoting his new film, Crimson Peak. In addition to doing the rounds on the interview circuit, Del Toro has just started tweeting, which is awesome because Del Toro is pretty much first on the list of film personalities you'd want to see 120-word blasts from on a regular basis. Del Toro is like if the back catalog of famous monsters of Filmland gained sentience and signed up for social media. You just want to know, what is this man reading and watching? What new horror movie icon is he installing in statue form at the house he has set aside solely for his elaborate collections and obsessions? You have so much stuff that you and your family had... A separate home? The toys took over. Yeah, the toys took over two houses with secret passages, a rain room where it rains seven days a week. It's one of the greatest things I've ever seen. Del Toro's first recurring tweet series is called Writing a Wrong. In it, Del Toro points out a film which has a certain reputation, forgotten, misunderstood, and argues for its proper place in the canon. An example, Writing a Wrong, Catch Me If You Can by Steven Spielberg. Huge pedigree, I know, but it should be acknowledged as top tier and not just a curia. Maybe Del Toro is feeling a bit defensive of misunderstood films because his latest, Crimson Peak, is already in the process of becoming one. Even though Del Toro has said this in just about every interview he's given, Crimson Peak is not a horror film, it's a gothic romance. Big difference. Crimson Peak has been called out repeatedly for not being scary enough, as in this flippant social media post from Entertainment Weekly. Crimson Peak is so preoccupied with being visually stunning, it forgets to be scary. Admittedly, it's hard to take anything EW posts on social media too seriously. One week after posting about Crimson Peak, the social media team broke the news that Khloe Kardashian and Kendrick Lamar would not be getting a divorce, to the consternation of many a commenter, as well as in all likelihood the editor of EW, who had just spent a whole week running high-profile stories on an ailing Lamar Odom. So yeah, quote, it forgets to be scary, is such a horrible way to put it, but EW's actual critic, Chris Nashawadi, doesn't ever actually frame his dissatisfaction with Crimson Peak in that way, so... 
you know, semantics. But that sense that a filmmaker of del Toro's caliber, that the guy who made Pan's Labyrinth somehow didn't realize he'd failed to make an appropriately scary movie, as if he absentmindedly left all his jump scares back at the editing bay, perfectly encapsulates the condescension this film has experienced out of the gate. What does it say about what we expect from horror cinema in 2015, that a film which is begging publicly not to be graded based on its scare quotient is deemed not terrifying enough? That it is met with cries that it is, as the boisterous theater patron who stopped me after my showing to voice his disappointment put it, the biggest waste of money ever. Ever, 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 Maybe it's a failure to communicate. Do we as a culture not have the context anymore to understand what Del Toro means when he calls his film a gothic romance? Based on the channels from which most people get their information on upcoming films, do we even hear his plea? All that and more on this episode. We'll dive backwards in time and take a look at how the ghost story has evolved, and then we'll hop forward in time wondering what became of the gothic romance. Context Sensitive is a podcast that looks at a major cultural milestone and wonders, how did we get to this moment, and what does it mean that we're here? I'm Charles Gustine, and the big question I'm setting out to wrestle in this, our second episode, is... Whoever said Crimson Peak was going to be scary? I'm afraid of the ghost. I hear it likes the girls. I'm afraid of the ghost. Ghosts are real. That much I know. I've seen them all my life. Well, to some extent, the answer to the big question is depressingly simple. Whoever said Crimson Peak was going to be scary? Uh, the film's marketing did. as old as this one becomes in time a living thing never go below this level well there we go podcast episode over um thanks for listening in context sensitive all right well hold on actually i do still have a few questions why did universal feel they needed to go this direction to market crimson peak what do you want because as rebecca pale at Pajiba points out, a studio was essentially damning its own movie to being despised by pretty much everyone the trailers pulled in. You had a really good movie out this week, Universal. You took a gothic romance and made trailers for it that presented it as a generic horror film, and then you stand there all Kevin McAllister and Home Alone face when people go to a movie that they reasonably expect to be scary, and it's not scary. Crimson Peak was never supposed to be scary. Creepy? Yes. Atmospheric? Yes. Mysterious? Yes. Scary? No! It's an R-rated Jane Eyre with a few ghosts and Tom Hiddleston's ass. Look, I get that the audience for R-rated gothic romance is a lot smaller than the one for horror movie with ghosts. Scary! And I get wanting the largest amount of people to be interested in your movie prior to its release. But when people go in expecting a horror movie and are instead presented with a first half hour that's straight out of Bronte, a lot of them are going to be disappointed. And your reviews might suck, and word of mouth will be bad, and no one wins except the dark shaman whose purpose in life it apparently is to keep Guillermo del Toro from making things. Crimson Peak is actually del Toro's second spin through the phantasmagorical realm. His first ghost movie, in which ghosts weren't really the point, 
was the deeply sad Spanish-language period piece, The Devil's Backbone. It was made 14 years ago, when his films only needed to court a boutique audience. The audience that would go see deeply sad Spanish-language period pieces. Accordingly, the trailer has its scary moments, but even without dialogue, conveys much about the film's complex mood and setting. Films that court that boutique audience, recent small market success stories like The Babadook, and It Follows, can use more innovative strategies to relay their own very particular cocktails of dread, suspense, and eeriness. But films that are playing at the high rollers table, like Crimson Peak with its absurd-for-a-horror-film $55 million budget, end up having to up the ante in accordance with the other players at the table. And for the past six years, the surest way to get butts in seats has been to do what Paranormal Activity did in order to become the most profitable movie of all time. Show other people's butts in seats quaking in fear. Part 1. The Ghost Dimension. Hi, Def Camera. On. My girlfriend Katie, she thinks there's something in the house, I don't know. You believe me, right? I think we're going to have a very interesting time capturing whatever paranormal phenomena is occurring or is not occurring. Hearing a weird sound. Something's here. I feel it breathing on me. In September 2009, a screening was held in Hollywood, California. This audience was among the first to experience the movie Paranormal Activity. This is what they saw. This is the way the Paranormal Activity trailer begins. We read that text as we watch audience members casually strolling to their seats. And then, as we see audience members shriek and recoil from the now-familiar lo-fi night vision images, more flashes of text pop up, like this testimonial. The entire auditorium was freaked out of their minds. People were physically shaken. And the tagline, experience it for yourself. It's almost quaint to watch six years later, actually, because the entire framing device, the text explaining what you're about to see, the people walking to their seats, the way the footage from the movie is superimposed artificially onto a theater screen in front of the audience, also you get what's going on, that would all be completely unnecessary now. This is the lingua franca for horror marketing today, not just for other Jason Bloom productions like Paranormal Activity sequels or, or The Gallows. Audiences are having a terrifyingly good time. But also for pricier horror films set in the past, like The Conjuring and The Women in Black. On January 18th, 250 people saw the special preview of The Woman in Black. You've seen that, haven't you? It was nonstop. My heart just kept racing. At this point, if you see a night vision image of a couple with their hands over their eyes, jumping so hard popcorn kernels fall to the ground, you simply know what you're being told. Steal yourself. Scariest movie I've ever seen. Well, I love the movie. I'm okay, just not going to be able to sleep tonight. My heart is still pounding. <laughs> I'm scared as hell. It's an ideal strategy for the found footage boom. Horror cinema has been trending towards the more immediate for decades. What started as a genre built mostly on adaptations of 19th century gothic tales and spooky castles has transitioned quickly since the late 1960s to promising scares for the here and now. Possessions, hauntings, and murders are no longer reserved for the crumbling European manner of a brooding man with a dark secret. 
they could happen in a swanky New York apartment. What have you done to its eyes? On a quiet suburban street. Heck, maybe even in a two to three bedroom house. That's the room my son and daughter used to occupy. We believe it's the heart of the house. This house has many hearts. Just like yours. If you were, you know, the average moviegoer and not the small set of the population, I guess, that still broods over dark secrets and probably manners. And found footage horror takes this one step further. Instead of giving you the tools to muse, hmm, this could happen in my neighborhood, it negates the need for musing. This actually happened, it shouts. Films post-Blair Witch haven't quite hit on that movie's formula for fooling some of the populace into believing the events on screen actually occurred, or at least making it really fun for that populace to suspend disbelief for a few hours and pretend like they might believe, but the paranormal activity marketing strategy has been just as powerful. Because it almost becomes tough when watching a paranormal activity trailer to distinguish shots in the trailer that are from the actual movie from similar night vision shots of theater patrons watching the movie. Everything is tinted that same gray-green. The introductory text, the grainy footage, it all combines to tell a story. If you can muster up the courage to see this horrifying thing, well, it'll be like you, yourself, are in a horror movie. Do you dare? No! Too scary! Jason Bloom's world-conquering success as a producer is like William Castle's dream transformed from silly gimmickry into profitable formula. I am William Castle, the director of the motion picture you're about to see. I feel obligated to warn you that some of the sensations, some of the physical reactions, which the actors on the screen will feel, will also be experienced for the first time in motion picture history by certain members of this audience. Castle was a similarly profit-conscious producer who, in the 50s and 60s, wanted to turn the theater into a sensory onslaught, a funhouse that would grab you in concert with whatever was going on on screen. When a skeleton approached on screen, one would fly over the audience. Castle would go so far as to actually jolt theater seats with vibrating motors to elicit screams when showing his film, The Tingler. Unfortunate, sensitive people will at times feel a strange, tingling sensation. Others will feel it less strongly. But don't be alarmed, you can protect yourself. At any time you are conscious of a tingling sensation, you may obtain immediate relief by screaming. At the end of Castle's lecture, we see audience members' faces emerge from the screen, shrieking in terror. Bloom and his directors have, 50 years later, made that promise of visceral thrills uh, more convincing. We're now starting to see the audience reaction strategy falter a bit. Paranormal Activity of the Ghost Dimension is a pretty big disappointment. But for years, this promise of terror... See how terrified this big man is? No! No! You're going to eat this up, has seemed to lead directly to some of the genre's biggest profits ever. Audiences go in, expecting to feel what they see others feeling, in the trailers, at regular intervals. And a Bloomhouse production is built to deliver on that promise. 
Del Toro, however, is not particularly interested in playing the role of storyteller as vibrating motor, time to elicit jumps from the audience every ten minutes. Faced with those expectations... Has anyone died in this house? Specific deaths. Violent deaths. Crimson Peak is a frustrating watch, to be sure. And while Crimson Peak's marketing doesn't go to the lengths of showing audience members cowering in fear, its 2015 appropriate crescendo into delirious, ghoulish pulse-pounding does little to prepare audiences for what Del Toro is actually willing to deliver. But, here's the thing. This isn't a new problem. There has never been a ghost story created especially for the adult moviegoer until The Innocents. Part 2. Haunted Mansions. Do they ever return to possess a living we can go back as far as 1961 to see that paranormally-tinged thrillers set on sprawling English estates have set their marketing to approximately, uh, fever pitch. Even if the movies they're selling are, at the most, evocatively moody. Is what the trailer for The Innocents asks over and over again in a spooky voice that seems to imply, uh, duh, they do. So you'd be hard-pressed to glean from the marketing that the answer may very well be no. The Innocents is adapted from Henry James's 1898 novella, The Turn of the Screw. On the Henry James chiller of macabre evil. Brilliantly adapted for the screen by William Archibald and Truman Capote. It expertly preserves that novella's ambiguity, around which a century-long debate has circled. Is the new governess at Bly actually seeing ghosts who are possessing the two Moppets that are under her care? Or is she projecting her own insecurities onto relatively normal childhood behavior and hallucinating an elaborate ghost story? Accordingly, it is existentially terrifying to see our protagonist come apart at the seams, either failing to get anyone else to see what is actually there, or, even worse, doing something horrible to complete innocence based on her own psychosis. When the film is done, we're deeply troubled by what we just witnessed. But, is it scary? You could ask the exact same question of another film that clearly draws inspiration from Henry James, 2001's The Others, which, as a ghost story released in the aughts, is about as far from paranormal activity as you can get. On first viewing, The Others, about a strict World War II mother, played by Nicole Kidman, who is caring for her light-sensitive children on a foggy British estate, is a moody puzzle box mystery. What is up with those unseen others that her daughter is consorting with? You speak to them! Why? They're dead! What? The ghosts! Please come here! The ghosts? Why aren't they wearing sheets and clanking chains? On subsequent watches, once you have that oh moment, it is a character study of a deeply flawed individual who cannot cope with a dreadful realization. It could be described charitably as creepy, but it's never all that interested in jolting you out of your chair. Both these films play a longer game, 
There may not be any particular moment where you're terrified, but you leave the theater with a perturbed queasiness that can last for days. That is hard to capture in marketing, especially when there are secrets and nuances you're trying to preserve for the paying audience. It's understandable why these trailers lean on the scariest moments to draw audiences in. Audiences wondering disappointingly why a scary trailer didn't lead them to a movie that delivers on the horror formula as we've come to expect it? It's not a problem unique to Crimson Peak. Which brings us to an interesting twist on our big question, whoever said Crimson Peak was going to be scary. Well, who says it isn't scary? Fear is subjective. It is based on an audience member's own disposition, the expectations that audience member brings into the tempest of fear, and their willingness to surrender to the artifice and accept artificial fear as a fun substitute for the real thing, which, you know, no one wants to actually experience. As for me, your trusty podcast narrator, my affection for the, let's call it the uh, Halloween milieu, extends to uh, Scooby-Doo, the Haunted Mansion, and those silly demon automatons you can buy at Walmart that wiggle or spout ghoulish puns when someone sets off their motion sensors. Those are fun. This is a warning to all living mortals that whosoever opens this chest of demons will release 13 of the most terrifying ghosts upon the face of the earth. When it came to fear, I needed go no further. There are moments in 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo and in Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island that have genuinely terrified me. You won't get away with this! I've been getting away with it for 200 years. (laughs) But you see, that goes towards expectations. We expect every villain in a Scooby story to be a spiteful janitor yeah, in a mask. I'd have gotten away with it, too. If it wasn't for these blasted kids and their dogs. So, when that is not the case, when the ghouls are real, we can experience just as much genuine fear as someone who goes to a paranormal activity film expecting all the jumps of a paranormal activity film. Also, I am easy to terrify. Until I was 16, I spent the majority of any journey in a doom buggy with my eyes shut and my fingers covering my ears. An instinct you will see I have not grown out of if you ever sit next to me in a movie theater while something horrible is being foreshadowed. Yep, there. There they go. There go my fingers creeping up towards my ears. I am that six-foot-one guy with the beard cradling his entire face in his hands with his giant shoulders hunched up at about eye level in some kind of movie theater seat fetal position. When hinges creak in doorless chambers and strange and frightening sounds echo through the halls, whenever candlelights flicker where the air is deathly still, that is the time when ghosts are present, practicing their terror with ghoulish delight. Admittedly, I have come around on the gothic, the twisted, and the grotesque. I've found the beauty in the aesthetics of the macabre. I now relish any visit to the Gracie Manor at the Magic Kingdom. It's my favorite thing in all of Orlando, bar none. But I will never confuse aesthetic appreciation for increased bravery. My instinct when confronted with fear is still flight. 
to run, to hide, to shut it out. You will never find me at Halloween Horror Nights. It's a line I will never cross. I simply have no need in my life for actors menacingly wielding chainsaws at me. I never will. Towing that line, finding that balance, it's something that the Imagineers who created the Haunted Mansion refined for years, moving from too scary to too light, too pristine to too ramshackle. To see what can happen when that balance is thrown off, look to the Eddie Murphy film of the same name. Its aesthetic borrows everything gorgeous about the British horror story. The ornate candelabras and trembling hands, the stone-faced housekeepers, dark-haired lords of the house with haunting secrets, the cobwebs and the portraits and the beautiful bluish glow of the phantasm. As a matter of fact, it fully commits to that aesthetic, pushing further than Walt, who insisted on keeping the outside of the mansion looking inviting, would ever let his Imagineers go. The filmmakers go full-on creepy bayou, a milieu which suits Rick Baker's makeup work beautifully. All of that explains why I have a continued fondness for that film, but unfortunately, Eddie Murphy thinks he's in uh, Abbott and Costello meet the Grim Grinning Ghosts. And this history haunts these walls. I don't think it's a good idea to put that information on the listing. People love bathrooms. We should play up the whole toilet angle. I think that'd be best. <laughs> he approaches the entire enterprise with a raised eyebrow that just doesn't match the film's actual stakes. Dark spirits from the grave come forth. Don't you make no dark spirits come out while I'm sitting there. Wait till I leave before the dark spirits come out. He's like a tourist who knows it's all fake in stark contrast with Edith Cushing in Crimson Peak, who is all too certain that what is happening is real. Ghosts are real. That much I know. And is all too willing to investigate to find out more. Goodness, how many rooms are there? I don't know. Would you like to count them? This, I think, is the chief difference between the British ghost story and its modern American descendant. The British protagonist is a lone newcomer to a place with a long, dark, twisted past. A past which everyone, the butler, the maid, the gardener, the man of the house, the townspeople, all of them know it but the newcomer. This makes them inherently curious about the truth and makes them quick to get past the stage of disbelief. The American protagonists, because the horror formula usually dictates a collective, a family, a group of college co-eds on a road trip, they usually have arrived at a seemingly normal location, their new suburban home, a cabin in the woods, at which point they are assailed by a full coterie of ghouls. In the American version, the knowing housekeeper character has usually been replaced by a paranormal expert brought into uh, info dump whatever quick hand wavy explanation needs info dumping. You know, oh yeah, it, uh, that was an Indian burial ground. These souls, who for whatever reason are not at rest, are also not aware that they have passed on. They're not part of consciousness as we know it. They linger in a perpetual dream state. But the American protagonists usually dismiss this with something along the lines of, uh, enough with the history lesson already, Professor. How do we get rid of the damn things?
the quick acceptance and the curiosity are gone. And what we get instead is the standard middle-class family being punished until they can find some way to escape or until they don't. It's not the house. It's me. You cannot run from this. It will follow you. And this is how audiences approach these movies, as an assault, a crucible of fear, not as a mystery. They care as much about the reason for the haunting as the movies themselves do. And inevitably, the audience is disappointed when, with no other place to go, sequels delve back into the past to investigate who Reverend Cain is, or what exactly that coven of witches did to Katie and Christie. This is weird to the audience because these films were never about the past. But the British horror story is all about the past. It's carved into every stone, every ornate chandelier just quivers with it. It is a mystery meant to uncover the misdeeds of generations, the failed marriages, the shady dealings, the gruesome deaths. and. It's easy to see why this has gone out of fashion, right? We, as a society, simply do not have the headspace for family estates that are handed down through the generations and the screwy marriages and loyal staffs that come with them anymore. To most Americans, this is a notion as lost to time as the high noon shootout, that you would pass down stately manors and castles to your ancestors for hundreds of years, or that to maintain this you had to marry a spouse and that spouse was supposed to be your forever spouse come hell or high water. The houses we see in horror movies today do not have ancestral secrets. They were built three decades ago in a development boom. The family living there accidentally stumbled into something deeply wrong. If they had no part in kicking off the haunting, why would they stick around to see what the haunting really means? This may be the biggest place where Crimson Peak diverges from audience expectation. Edith is terrified by the ghosts, but is also savvy enough to realize, after a certain point, that they are trying to tell her about something even more sinister about an awful past. Mother, she looks quite horrible. As Todd Vanderwerf at Vox points out, British ghost stories stand in stark contrast to movies with violent ghosts like Poltergeist and Paranormal Activity because ghosts are often incidental to the action. Yes, they're there, but they're a way of making the story's psychological subtext into text the lurching reminders of the past that threaten to uncover long-buried secrets. This stems from the fact that in their traditional form, ghosts can't really hurt you. Look, for instance, at Del Toro's best film and richest ghost story, The Devil's Backbone. Even if the ghost in that film has moments where he's legitimately terrifying, he's still just a little boy, and his existence is a constant echo of the wartime reality the children in the film are forced to live through. The secrets of his creation don't weigh as heavily on the film as the sheer fact that these young boys have to live through the horrors of war. Tragedy, not horror. The tragedy of the past is everything in Crimson Peak, and it's no accident on Del Toro's part that our antagonists are old money Brits beholden to hanging on to their ancestral estate no matter what. And our protagonists are new money Americans who wonder why these lords and ladies don't simply pick up and make a new start elsewhere. 
which perfectly encapsulates the dichotomy of the old school and new school ghost stories. The old school is about a fear of the past resurfacing that comes with stagnancy, and the new school is about a fear of new beginnings that comes with mobility. Ultimately, regardless of the school, when it comes to this sort of story, we will go where our protagonist takes us, even to potential psychosis, if we invest in their plight. So even if the things which the protagonists of The Innocents, The Others, and Crimson Peak face aren't all that scary out of context, depending on your temperament, they are terrifying to the characters because of the larger quandaries they speak to. And so... If we in the audience do not become distracted or impatient waiting for cues to be scared, we can get a longer-lasting fright if we go along for the ride and throw our lots in with an Edith as she unravels the mysteries of a crimson peak. Speaking of rides... Welcome, foolish mortals, to the Haunted Mansion. I am your host, your ghost host... (laughs) The Haunted Mansion, which Walt Disney once described in an interview with the BBC as an American retirement home for British ghosts displaced by the Blitz, shows us that on a daily basis, there is an audience out there that's giddy for a mild creep fest. Of course, there's always my way. They relish the vague outline of a hanged man on the ceiling, perhaps, a a cackle and a pun. Now, as they say, look alive. But they don't approach horror as a game of crazed one-upsmanship. Look, there will always be hardcore gorehounds for whom Halloween Horror Nights would be the absolute worst because it's mere child's play, come on. And there will always be people like me for whom Halloween Horror Nights would be the absolute worst because intense scares and endorphin rushes just do not tingle the pleasure centers of our brain. We're all wired differently. The way I'm wired, Crimson Peak was plenty terrifying. There was no shortage of times where my hands were at my ears. But it was tolerable enough that I was able to appreciate Del Toro's grander mission, which is updating gothic horror and gothic romance, which were the reigning modes in the time of Laurence Olivier and Vincent Price, but were long ago thrown on the Hollywood dust heap with westerns, getting those back up to speed for the sensibilities of our time. Part 3. Air Apparent And gothic romance mostly is sort of this princess-like figure falling in love with a Byronian dark gentleman and going to a crumbling mansion, which is a staple of gothic. So this girl goes to that castle and discovers a horrible secret. I mean, I think you, you feel about films like you feel about food in a way. You, you're looking for a different flavor now and then. And this is a flavor that is quite unique. It's like very exotic. And you haven't had it in so long. I mean, the last time I saw a proper lavish uh, gothic romance must have been 30, 40 years. So I, I felt it was, it was good to bring it back into the sort of filmic conversation. 
Lest we assume that storytellers like Guillermo del Toro, attempting to revive out-of-fashion genres like the gothic romance that were once so oversaturated in the marketplace that they became something of a joke, lest we think that some newfangled 20th century phenomena... Although the passion for books of amusement founded on the marvellous relative to ghosts and spirits may be considered as having very much subsided, yet... I cannot but think that the tales which form the bulk of this little volume may still afford gratification in the perusal. From the period when the late Lord Orford first published The Castle of Otranto, till the production of Miss Radcliffe's romances, the appetite for the species of reading in question gradually increased, and perhaps it would not have been now surfeited, but for the multitude of contemptible imitations which the popularity of the latter writer called forth, and which continually issued from the press until the want of readers at length checked the inundation. This is perhaps the first thing that Lord Byron and his cohorts read aloud on